So, everybody's there in Psalm 19. This is, as we can see from the inscription we read on this psalm right at the top, this is a song, a psalm is a song, and it is a song that King David wrote and had given to the choir master or director of music so that it would be sung as praise to God during the times of corporate worship in the temple. And the overall focus of David's song is, in this one, is on the revelation of God, hence the title, the revelation of God. The first part celebrates how God has made himself known in a a general way through creation. And the second part of the psalm celebrates how God has made himself known in a special way, in a personal way, through his written word. Isaac Watts, the prolific English hymn writer, gave his adaptation of this psalm the following title. He called it, The Books of Nature and of Scripture Compared. The Books of Nature and Scripture Compared. Which is a good description of what David presents in his song. And as we will see, Scripture is far greater than nature as a means of of God's self-revelation because... It is the very means by which God saves and sanctifies his people. So let's read the psalm starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant, or by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the song really has three distinct parts in which it directs our attention first to the works of God, then to the word of God, and finally, to the worshiper of God. And 
As an outline for this morning, in verses 1 through 6, we see the sky's proclamation. In verses 7 through 11, we see the scripture's power. And in verses 12 to 14, we see the servant's prayer. In the first verse, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, the word glory literally means heaviness or weightiness. And it's used to refer to the the power and authority and greatness of God, his weight, his glory. In the second statement of the verse, we see that the glory of God that David has in mind here and is emphasizing is that which is seen in the work of his hands. They're parallel. The glory of God that David is emphasizing is that which is seen in the very works of his hands. What we see in the heavens, in that great expanse that is above us all, where the sun and moon and stars and planets are contained, is the undeniable evidence of the weightiness of God. His power, his authority, his greatness. And David figuratively depicts this evidence as a proclamation. In the first four verses, the sky above is depicted as communicating a message to mankind. In verse 1, it it declares and proclaims. In verse 2, it, it pours out speech and reveals or declares knowledge. In verse 3, its voice is heard. And in verse 4, its voice and its words go out. And the point is not that it is making noise or emitting sound, but that it is communicating truth, and more specifically, truth about God. The message that the sky above communicates is as follows. If we can fill it in. What do we see? What is the message when we look up at the heavens? All that you see is the work of God. He is the creator who made it all and the ruler who governs it all. He transcends everything. He is greater than everyone. He is worthy of praise and there is no other right response than to worship and serve him. I would say that is a clear message you can get just by looking up at the heavens above. The design that we see, the order, the governance of the celestial bodies. And something is greater than them all, governing them all. It speaks of the Creator and His authority and power. And the only right response is to worship and serve Him. In verse 2, David emphasizes the fact that the sky's proclamation is continual. Like water gushing from a fountain, the sky pours out speech day to day and night to night. It is unceasing testimony. It's always bearing witness. You can't miss it. You might miss out on seeing particular astronomical events like eclipses or planetary alignments or comets, don't you hate it when that happens? You find out like the next morning, like, oh, did you see like all, all the planets were aligned and, and the moon was there too? And you're like, what? Sorry, I didn't describe to NASA's newsfeed or anything, but 
Isn't it amazing when you get to see those things? Of course, those are amazing wonders we see in the sky. Wonderful to behold. Uh, but that's not what David is speaking about. He's speaking about what is visible and evident day after day, night after night. He's speaking of what we see in the sky on a daily basis, the continual proclamation. In verse 3 and in the first half of verse 4, David makes it clear that the sky's proclamation is not only continual, it is universal. In verse 3 we read, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And a more literal translation of the Hebrew text here is as follows. There is no speech, and there are no words without their voice being heard. That is, the voice of the heavens and the sky above. There is no speech, there are no words without the voice of the heavens and the sky above being heard. In other words, it, it doesn't matter what earthly language men speak and understand, the sky's proclamation is plain to all. There is no one who is incapable of understanding it. It is universal. Then in verse 4 we read, Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So not only is there no language barrier, there's no geographical barrier also. The visual displays of the heavens is perceived by everyone everywhere. And therefore, the sky's proclamation is heard by all. Its, its message is, is sent throughout the entire earth to the end of the world. And people's responses to this general revelation of God, well, that may vary. How they respond to it may vary, but none are left without it. And that's true. No one is left without the witness of God in the heavens. Everyone receives it. No one is missed. No one is too far away. God's glory is proclaimed to all. All that you see is the work of God. He is the creator who made it all and the ruler who governs it all. He transcends everything. He is greater than everyone. He is worthy of praise, and there is no other right response than to worship and serve him. Message declared, message received by all. Starting in the second half of, the, of verse 4, David then turns his attention to one particular celestial body, and that is to the sun, the most prominent of the celestial bodies, the, the great lights that God appointed to rule the day as is stated in the creation account in Genesis 1. And what we have here through verse 6 is not a contradiction of the fact that the earth rotates on an axis as it orbits around the sun. What we have here is a poetic description of what man observes from his perspective on the earth as he looks up and beholds the heavens. Just as we also, even today, even now in our day and age, we still refer to the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. Right? It's figurative speech from our perspective, so it is accurate, it is true. Uh, there is movement from our stationary perspective. No contradiction. And then from verse 4 through verse 5, we read the following, In them, in the heavens... He, God, has set a tent for the sun, 
which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. So God, the, the creator of all things, he gave the sun its place and its role, and the sun in turn dutifully occupies that place and role, thus fulfilling the purpose for which God made it. The sun is a servant to its maker. Right? Many pagan cultures would deify the sun or worship the sun god. But David, as the believer in the one true God who has the revelation of God, the truth that there is only one God who made all things, the heavens and the earth and everything in them, he recognizes the sun is also the work of God's hands, and it is merely a servant, serving its maker, serving with enthusiasm and joy in the fullness of its strength, as can be seen in the analogies given. So at the break of day, it, it bursts forth like a bridegroom on the day of his wedding. Bridegroom on the day of his wedding. Exuberant, joyful, beaming. And throughout the course of the day, he says it is like a great athlete running his course with ease. A mighty man running his course with ease, displaying his strength. And in verse 6 we read, Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. So once again, the, the proclamation of the sky is universal. The sun's course is on display for all to see. And its presence is felt by all as its heat is continually projected upon the earth. So you could say, even for the blind person, the presence of the sun is felt. The witness is felt. Now, so far in this song, the, the focus has been on how God has revealed himself in a general way to all people at all times. General revelation. No matter what generation we belong to, no matter what corner of the earth we live in or what language we speak, we are all sitting underneath the sky and beholding in it the handiwork of God, which continually proclaims his glory. And as the Apostle Paul said in his epistle to the Romans, what can be known about God is plain to mankind, because God has shown it to mankind. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. However, such general revelation, well, that only gets us so far. It brings us to an awareness of God's existence and his attributes and our accountability to him. It makes us aware of our accountability to him, but it, it does not bring us to a personal knowledge of God in a right relationship with him. For that, we need God's special revelation. And he has given that to us in his word. And that is the focus that David 
turns his attention to the focus of the second part of his song in verses 7 through 11, in which David writes of, of the Scripture, the Scripture's power. Now notice the, the significant change that takes place when the focus shifts from the natural realm to the Word of God. In the first six verses, the most general title for God is used, and that only once. General revelation allows one to come to know God in a general sense, hence the general title for God is used, El in the Hebrew. It means God. Then, if you look starting at verse 7, what is used? The personal name of God. Yahweh in the Hebrew, reflected in our Bibles, is Lord in all caps. Or if you see God in all caps, it's also translating the, the personal name of God. And what do we see? His personal name and appears multiple times. So the change from God's title to his personal name reflects the change that is brought about in a person's life as a result of the scripture's power. The special revelation of God. In verses 7 through 11, David, well, he described the, the nature and effects of scripture. God's special revelation through his word. In verse 7, we read, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What David says in the first line is reinforced in the second line. Parallelism. Poetic device. What he says in the first line is reinforced in the second line. Scripture, as the law of the Lord and the testimony of the Lord, Yahweh, it is perfect. That is, it is complete, it is impeccable, it has no flaws, no deficiencies. That's the word of God. And he also says it is sure. That is, it is trustworthy. And what is its effect? Well, in the ESV it says, reviving the soul. Other translations have restoring the soul, renewing the soul, and refreshing the soul. And of course I would say, yeah, I can see that. It does that. However, the New King James... Which, which says, converting the soul. Converting the soul. That seems closest to capturing the idea that David is getting across here. The Hebrew phrase literally means to cause the soul to turn around. Indicating a, a complete change of course. It's the word for turning. Also used for repentance. So the basic idea here is that the law of the Lord brings about repentance in the soul. It causes a soul to repent, a person to repent. That is, to turn away from sinful rebellion and to turn in faith to God. In other words, it 
It is the means by which God saves and reconciles sinners to himself. The law of the Lord is the means by which God saves and reconciles sinners to himself. It is his special revelation as the power to do that is the means that he uses to do that. And we understand the gospel, right, is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. God uses the means, and the means he has, has appointed is his word. This idea, converting the soul, causing the soul to repent, is supported by the second line of the verse, which says what? It says that scripture makes the simple-minded person wise. This is the simple, but it's a singular person. It makes that simpleton wise. The simple-minded person is described in Scripture as someone who lacks sense. Someone who is unable to distinguish between truth and falsehood and therefore believes everything. Someone who is oblivious to moral danger, walking straight into it and suffering for it. Simple-minded, empty-headed, dangerously open-minded, gullible, naive. In other words, the the simple-minded person is a person who is dangerously wandering about in spiritual darkness and needs to be saved. And God does so by means of his word. The Apostle Paul stated that Scripture has the power to make you wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15 The scripture has the power to make you wise unto salvation, and that it does. Now, in verse 8, we read, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This reflects, if we think of the first line reflecting repentance, salvation, the turning of the soul. This reflects the, the genuine spiritual tramper, transformation of the one whom God has granted repentance and faith and made wise unto salvation through his word. The precepts, the, the moral instructions of the Lord are described as being, what? Right. Literally, the word it means straight and level. And what do they do? They gladden the believer's They they lead us in the way that is right, and they cause us to rejoice. God's word leads us in the way that is right, and it causes us to rejoice. It brings us joy. Charles Spurgeon's comment on this verse is as follows. He said, Mark the progress. He who was converted was next made wise, and is now made happy. That truth which makes the heart right then gives joy to the right heart, the justified heart. And what of the the commandment of the Lord? David says it is pure, enlightening the eyes of the believer. Literally, it it illuminates our eyes. Now, there are different ways that that this expression can be understood. Well, it it could be referring 
to one being equipped by God's word with wisdom and insight. And of course, how it's translated, enlightening the eyes, it kind of sounds like what it's saying. That's a possible understanding. However, I think it is more likely that it is referring to being encouraged by God's word. So keep that in mind. Rather than enlightening that we are being encouraged, we are our lives being illuminated by the word, referring to our encouragement by it. I'll give you three reasons why. First, the same exact expression, illuminating the eyes, is, is used in a couple other passages of scripture where it refers to a renewal of hope. A renewal of hope. If we turn to Psalm 13, that's another psalm by David. So a psalm as well, by David as well. And he writes this, just listen to this, and, and you'll, you'll hear the idea of this referring to renewal of hope or encouragement. David wrote, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. Illuminate my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So notice he's not talking about needing to be saved, his life saved. He's talking about having his, his hope restored. Light up my eyes and again, sleep the sleep of death. But then we see it's his enemies rejoice because he's shaken. So there's an example, the exact same phrase, obviously referring to encouragement. And then the opposite, the second reason is the opposite expression, the dimming of the eyes, outside of referring to death or old age, it's used for that too. But outside of that, it, it clearly refers to sorrow and or discouragement. In Psalm 69, verse 3, also by David, he wrote, I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. This sorrow and, and discouragement. Psalm 88, 9, another psalm, uh, the psalmist wrote, My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. You see the idea? So the dimness of the eyes expressing sorrow and discouragement, so then to have the eyes illuminated is to alleviate that to encourage someone, to restore their joy. And of course, that leads to the, the, the final point, when we're thinking of these statements that David is making, and they're close together, and what he says in the first part is reinforced in the second part. Well, the idea of encouragement forms a, a closer connection to the gladdening of the heart that we see in the first half of the verse. You see that? So... Of course, when we read any of our translations, of course, all these descriptions are true of God's word. Of course, it enlightens us, right? But here, what is David's point? Right? He spoke of the power of God to save the sinner. And then the power of God's word, the power of God's word to save the sinner. And then the power of God's word for the effect that it has, it, it brings them joy and encouragement. And you think even the, the, the joy of one's salvation for the one who is is newly saved, right? Rejoicing in the joy of their salvation. Of course, that doesn't end either. Uh, for the mature saint to return to, the, uh, to rejoicing in the joy of their salvation, that's something we 
continually do, and the word refreshes us to do that, encourages us. So the takeaway of verse 8 then is, is that the believer experiences joy and encouragement through Scripture. God's word will gladden our hearts. It will encourage us. And the Apostle Paul said in Romans that what is written in God's word is for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans chapter 15 verse 4. What is written in God's word is for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. It gladdens our heart. It illuminates our eyes. And in the first part of verse 9, we then read, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And David's approach with, with this line is different than that of the two previous verses. Here, he is referring in a roundabout way to the believer who has been saved through the word of God. Notice, he refers to the fear of the Lord. When was the last time you called your Bible? I'm going to read the fear of the Lord. Right? But it's, it's connected, but he's, he's, making a different, he's taking a different approach. It's a roundabout way to refer to the believer who has been saved through the word of God. The believer is the one in whom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord so we understand it rightly, is worshipful submission to God as a result of rightly and humbly acknowledging his greatness and his power and holiness and righteousness and absolute authority over all things. It is worshipful submission to God as a result of who truly is. Uh, we don't have to shy away from the term fear God. The one who fears God is the one who is right with God. The fear of the Lord is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. One commentator defines the fear of the Lord this way, or explains it this way. He says, fearing God is becoming so acutely aware of his moral purity and omnipotence that one is genuinely afraid to disobey him. That's not a bad thing, because he is holy. Fearing God is becoming so acutely aware of his moral purity and omnipotence that one is genuinely afraid to disobey him. David says that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring, that is, standing forever. And this word clean was often used to refer to ceremonial purity cleanness, which was necessary for an Israelite to have in order to maintain proper fellowship with God and to enter into his presence at the temple. It had to be ceremonially clean. And in this case, David speaks of the cleansing provided by God for the one who fears him and trembles at his word. So the one who comes to fear the Lord is cleansed by God, is made clean. That's the idea. And such a person will stand before God forever. So this statement here is referring to essentially the effects of the word on the believer. The fear of the Lord in that believer makes that believer clean 
And that believer, as a result, will stand forever, be able to stand forever before God. The Apostle John said that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, what? Well, he abides forever. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, he abides, he remains forever. So we see the same truth expressed here. And then in the second half of verse 9, David says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Literally, the judgments of the Lord are truth. All that he has declared in his word is absolute truth and is completely just, is what he's saying. His, his judgments, then, are, are a, what a sure foundation. Because they are truth, we can rest upon them with absolute certainty. We can make sense of the world by them, and we can order our lives according to them. His judgments are truth. And David continues in verse 10 and says that they are more desirable. In our ESV it says more to be desired or to be more desired, but more desirable is the idea. They're more desirable than gold. Even much fine gold. They are also sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Well, only a sinner saved by the grace of God sees the word of God as, as being more valuable than the finest gold and the, most, and the more pleasant, or seeing it as more valuable than gold and more pleasant than the sweetest honey. Only a sinner saved by the grace of God sees the word that way. And how you view the scriptures is... In some ways, it is evidence of the genuineness of your salvation. And at the end of the day, the, the one who truly has been made right with God recognizes they are under the authority of his word. The, the, the word of God is not off to the side as a peer. Uh, something you can pick and choose from, right? You truly do see it as the authority over your life. And not only that, but you see it as valuable, precious. And you also see it as pleasant. If, if, if reading the scripture is, is painful for you, a chore for you, it might be that you, you lack the spiritual life that you need to be genuinely saved, to have a right relationship with God. Because if you are truly born from above, born again, through faith in Christ, uh, you will be like an infant and you'll view the word of God like milk. You'll be craving the word of God like a newborn craves milk. The word of God all of a sudden will become valuable in your sight and precious and pleasant. The scripture will bless you and it will enrich you far more than the fleeting riches and pleasures of this world. I mean, you think any, anything, that, whatever people are running after, chasing after, that, that they want to get. Money, or wealth, pleasure. How long does that last? It's fleeting. It's ultimately empty. Leaves you, leads you towards emptiness. It doesn't ultimately satisfy Scripture is, has far more to offer. And in verse 11, David says, Moreover, 
by them, that is, by the judgments of the Lord, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The word of God not only makes us wise into salvation and directs and empowers us to live according to his good and pleasing and perfect will, it also actively warns us against straying from his will. It warns us of the craftiness of Satan and the destructive consequences of sin. It continually warns us, doesn't it? It warns us that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have us, but we must rule over it. There is great reward when we believe God's judgments, heed his warnings, and obey his will for us. There's great reward. The problem is that, well, we, we fall short. We know it. David knew it. We who believe and cherish the word of God are the Lord's servants, but we're not like the sun, as it's described in the first part of the song. We're not constant in our obedience to God, are we? After speaking of the, the warning from God's judgments, David moves to the third and final part of his song. You know, we saw... The sky's proclamation in the verses 1 through 6 and the scripture's power in verses 7 through 11. And now we will consider the servant's prayer in verses 12 to 14. This prayer is a believer's right response to the revelation of God. We want to say this whole song is about the revelation of God and here we are. This part shows us the believer's right response to that revelation. Having been saved by means of it, having been, well, even sanctified by means of it, encouraged by means of it, now we see the response as a result of it. David says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. It is impossible for us to know all the unintentional ways that we have fallen short and sinned against the Lord through our thinking and our words and our behavior. I mean, can you keep track? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if he, he weighs the heart, he knows the mind, he knows the heart, he knows all things, he sees all things. And we just got to know there's so many ways I have fallen short that I probably am not even aware of, because God is holy, and I'm still in the flesh, and sometimes oblivious to the ways that I am dishonoring Him. Unintentional ways that we fall short and sin against the Lord. More times, probably, than we perhaps we'd like to admit, but you know, we can be thoughtless, careless, prideful, foolish, selfish, impulsive, and so on. You know, those kind of things just make you oblivious to you know, your sin, kind of cloud that perception of it. And then maybe later in hindsight, you're like, oh, I, yeah, I guess, I guess that was bad attitude or shouldn't have said that. Well, these are, these are all those, those hidden transgressions. 
And for such sins as these, David, what does he ask for? What does he ask for? He asks for mercy. But God would not hold those sins against him, knowing that there must be many. And God knows them perfectly. Please, Lord, I don't even know, but please don't hold them against me. In addition to this, David prays in, in verse 13. He goes on. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, which are intentional, high-handed sins. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Notice that David does not ask for pardon here. You see that? He doesn't ask for pardon. He instead prays a preemptive prayer request. He asks that God would restrain him so that he won't commit intentional sin whenever he is enticed to do so. If that time comes, that God would keep him back. Restrain him. He was not trusting in his own strength. He was not trusting in his own willpower. He knew he needed God's grace and help in order to honor and serve God faithfully. And so do we. So do we. That's humility. That is humility. And it is the humble servant who pleases God. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And what we see in, in David's prayer is that he, a king, well, he was humbled before God. And what did that to him? The word of God. Coming to know the knowledge of God through his word humbled him. And he recognized his absolute dependency upon God, his need for God, his own weakness. We ought to have a, a sanctified distrust of ourselves. Or a holy distrust of ourselves. If we heed the warnings of God's word, we will. Which ought to then prompt prayers from us to God, such as, as this one. We should pray prayers like that. Thinking of the ways that we have dishonored God and asking that he might not hold that against us. And also preemptively praying that he would keep us back from going astray. And knowingly going astray. And, and stubbornly persisting in the way that is not good that displeases him. And then finally, in verse 14, David concludes with the following request. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So at the, at the beginning of this song was David's depiction of the heavens, pouring forth speech and declaring the glory of God. And now we see David's desire to have his own words offered up as a sacrifice of praise to God. This is where the revelation of God in his word leads the believer. It works in him 
both the desire to be sanctified for the glory of God and the dependency upon God to bring that work to completion. You see, so when you read Psalm 19, we see uh, God's word on display and described. Well, now we understand, we can see David's intent. There's a progression there that it brings about salvation. It makes us wise into salvation and brings us into the joy of having a right relationship with God and encourages us and instills in us the fear of the Lord, which is the foundation for wisdom and knowledge before God. And it makes us clean and justified before him, and we have the hope that we will stand before him forever. And then it does bring us to a realization that we fall short. God is holy, we are not. We are redeemed, but we need, by his grace, we need his work in us that we might grow in our sanctification, that we might be conformed more and more to the truth, to his will. And as we know, the greatest goal for our salvation is that we be conformed more and more to the likeness of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, who, by the way, is the one who made any of this possible for us to be made right with God. How can one truly be declared right? How can one truly be made clean? How can one's offering to God truly be acceptable at all? How can the sinner approach the holy God? And that is because Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world to reconcile sinners to God through his death, burial, and resurrection, atoning for the sin, so that in his name, by faith in him, they might be justified, might have their sins forgiven, and enter into this personal relationship with God. Now, I had mentioned... Isaac Watson, he had this, this hymn adaptation of, of Psalm 19. And he had this goal of going through the, the Psalter, the, through the Psalms, and versifying them, again, in a, a, a rhythmic way that would translate to singing in English um, with our poetry standards, and also Christianizing them, not changing them utterly, but, but kind of bringing them forward with, in light of the revelation of the New Testament. An ambitious project, but a prolific hymn writer, and I wanted to at least read what he's written as, as a final meditation, as a final thought as we close. This is, this is his adaptation of Psalm 19, which he called, The Books of Nature and of Scripture Compared. The heavens declare thy glory, Lord, in every star thy wisdom shines. But when our eyes behold thy word, we read thy name in fairer lines. The rolling sun, the changing lights, and nights and days thy power confess. But the blessed volume thou hast writ reveals thy justice and thy grace. Sun, moon, and stars convey thy praise round the whole earth and never stand. So when thy truth began its race, it touched and glanced on every land. Nor shall thy spreading gospel rest till through the world thy truth has run, till Christ has all the nations blessed that see the light or feel the sun. Great Son of Righteousness, capital S and R referring to Christ, arise, bless the dark world with heavenly lights. Thy gospel makes the simple wise, thy laws are pure, thy judgments right. Thy noblest wonders here we view, 
in souls renewed and sins forgiven. Lord, cleanse my sins, my soul renew, and make thy word my guide to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, and we are so grateful that you have made yourself known, not just in a, a general way, which is glorious, but in a personal way, you have made yourself known in your word, where, where we can come to a saving knowledge of you, and we thank you that by your grace you you gave us eyes to see and to behold you as you truly are and behold the glory of your Son in whom we have forgiveness of sins, in whom we have the hope of eternal life and the hope of everlasting joy in his kingdom. We know that the whole world is his inheritance. All things are created through him and for him. And that's in Jesus, your Son, we become co-heirs with him that he will share it all with us, an undeserving, gracious, glorious gift, demonstrating your kindness towards sinners, your mercy and grace. We know how undeserving we are. We know also, as, as we read of David sharing his heart in this song, we know that we too fall short. And so we pray the same prayer as he did, we pray that you would declare us innocent from hidden faults. That you would keep us back also from any presumptuous sins. Keep us from straying in that way. Pray that you would not let the desire, sinful desires of our flesh rule over us. But that we would truly rule over them by your grace, by the strength you provide, so that we might walk blamelessly before you, standing in your grace, Lord, and that you would help us to honor you with our lives. And we, we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We thank you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen.